Um, I don't know if I'll be honest long, uh, today, but I just wanted to kind of continue discussing some of the stuff we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And, um, <clears throat> my premise the last couple of weeks has been, uh, working with scripture, uh, working with really Christianity in the sense of what's wrong with it. Um, and kind of where do we go from here if we've deconstructed from it? Um, and but my premise has been that the church really got off the rails and about the third and fourth century, <clears throat> and that the real problem is a literal interpretation and a literal reading of scripture that's stuck in an ancient history that we really can't uncover. One of the things I did this week was uh, sort of dove in a little bit to the information about the historicity of Jesus. Was Jesus a historical person? Is the Jesus story a myth? And there is a significant scholarly voice out there that says that Jesus was not a historical person at all, that Jesus represented a blending together of several stories and myths and things of that nature <clears throat> from that time period to retell the myth or the story of a dying and rising God. Um, they, and, and then there's the Jesus seminar people who've been looking at the historical Jesus for decades who insist that Jesus was a historical person and they're trying to figure out who he was. And so I kind of looked at the evidence there and I'm not educated enough on it to really arrive at a conclusion. In other words, I don't know what I don't know about the situation. Um, and I find both arguments somewhat compelling. It is worth noting that the idea that there was no historical Jesus and that it was entirely mythological person uh, that we read about in our Gospels or that Christianity came out of thin air without a historical person like Jesus is very much still considered a fringe section of scholarly thinkers, not just religious thinkers, but historical historians and historical scholars as well. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, why get lost in those weeds is my, <laughs> is my point. I don't think we could say one way or the other. I always feel like if there's a fringe element within a particular group of experts or body of knowledge, whether it's um, scientific or medical or historical or religious or whatever, the burden of proof is always on the fringe element to change the model, to say we have enough evidence to support what we're saying. That will probably never happen with the scholars that believe Jesus was entirely a myth unless they discover something else that's going to prove that, and the chances of them discovering something else that's going to prove that is pretty Pretty slim, I would say. Um, their biggest argument for Jesus not existing is the absence of evidence. Um, at least from what I can tell. Again, I don't know what I don't know. But uh, the absence of evidence is never the evidence of absence, as they say. 
But here's my point. I, I think we get lost in the weeds because here's something that they all agree on, that most Bible scholars who are honest absolutely agree that there are mythological elements in the Gospels themselves. There are retellings of old stories and old myths and even teachings that were around in the ancient world. And the Gospels themselves, the ones that actually made it into our Bibles, do not agree on a lot of points. There's a lot of disagreement. You begin to see that each author has an agenda that they're putting forward. They have a version of Jesus that they're trying to tell about and that they're trying to sell, if you will, or influence the thinking of their followers. I find that fascinating because one of the things that was really eye-opening for me about Jesus in regards to Jesus is that in modern religion, in modern Christian religion, there are so many different Jesuses. Which Jesus are you serving? And I've said this before, but are you serving the Baptist Jesus who doesn't do miracles anymore today? All that stuff passed away. And, you know, he's just interested in getting you to heaven and coming back in a rapture and a second coming at some point. Are you serving the socially, the, the social gospel Jesus of the more, some of the more liberal traditions like, uh, current Methodist tradition or some Presbyterian churches or Episcopalian churches? Or are you serving the Catholic Jesus who works through the Pope? Or are you serving the charismatic Jesus who wants you to speak in tongues? And if you're in the charismatic movement, which charismatic Jesus? The, the, the Jesus of David Wilkerson, who uh, is going to come back in wrath against America, or the Jesus of Kenneth Copeland that wants you to be rich and doesn't have any anger, or the Jesus of the Vineyard Movement who just wants to hang out and be intimate with you, uh, or the Jesus of the <clears throat> Kansas City thing Mike Vickle does, IHOP Movement, where Jesus is just looking for his bride and the bridal paradigm Jesus. My point is everybody's putting their own bent, their own theological bent on who Jesus is and then peddling it, right? This is exactly what was going on in the first century. It actually happens in the Gospels themselves. And you can begin to see this really easily by just comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, and comparing their version of events. I remember I did this one time. With the Christmas story. I mean, you would think if, if, <laughs> think about how big Christmas and Easter are in the Christian, uh, religion today. I mean, you know, there, we used to talk about people that only come to church on Christmas and Easter. Um, and those stories can't even harmonize. In fact, those stories are the worst harmonized stories in the entire Bible. And it's so funny because only Matthew and Luke have Christmas stories in them. John and Mark don't mention anything about Jesus' birth. And they the, the stories are completely different in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, starting with the genealogies. The, the genealogies, who begat who begat who begat who, they, they don't even line up at all. They don't match or line up at all. you got different people in there, different characters, different biblical characters. That are in there. So they couldn't even get the genealogies right. But I remember taking one evening when we were doing Bible studies for people who wanted to go deeper into the Bible. And I laid out for them the just the journeys of the telling of the Christmas story 
uh, and how it, how it happens, how it takes place. And we, you know, in our Christmas pageants and whatever, we converge Matthew's version, Luke's version. We kind of blend them together in this Christmas play. But when you lay them out side by side, it becomes really clear that both stories can't be true at the same time. And I remember, I think we were there. I think I was there with some people. Uh, I wasn't arguing. I was just laying it out. And I think I was there till 1030 with people who were doing their best to harmonize those stories in their mind, not knowing that since the beginning when the Gospels were written, people have tried to harmonize those stories or harmonize the Gospels and haven't been able to. And that the critics of Christianity in the beginning have always pointed out, going all the way back to even before the Bible was canonized, have argued about the inconsistencies or have made the point that they borrowed stories from the pagan world, other myths and stories from the pagan world, and wove them together and put them around the person of Jesus. Uh, so this is nothing new. This is something that was evident from the beginning. So Matthew, just, just a couple things. In Matthew's telling, because what Matthew's doing with Jesus is Matthew is really speaking and writing to a Jewish community and trying to convince the Jewish community that Jesus is the new Moses. And so he's making the life of Jesus parallel the life of Moses. So in Matthew's telling, Jesus, uh, Herod is out to kill Jesus and demands that every child under the age of two or whatever be put to death, exactly like what happened in Moses' story. Um, whereas Luke's telling a totally different story. Luke doesn't have Jesus fleeing into Egypt to get away. There's no telling at all of the uh, Herod trying to wipe out the kids. In fact, Jesus goes to the temple to follow the purification uh, prescriptions given in the law of Moses. So, and Jesus doesn't do that at all in Matthew's version. And you beca- it becomes really clear that Mark has a version of Jesus. Matthew has a version of Jesus. Luke has a version of Jesus. And John has a version of Jesus. And they're competing narratives, if you will, because of the different communities and stuff that were around. And then as you dig into it deeper, you find out that, um, a lot of the stories are retelling of stories about other people. And I don't want to get into the weeds with that, but it has been an interesting study, and I will get into it some more. I put something up on Facebook this last week, and people expressed some interest. But when you look at ancient philosophers, um, they were also mystics. <clears throat> and this ties into what I really wanted to talk about today. They were all mystics. Um they all had miracle stories. Pythagoras. In fact, one of the things uh, that's really interesting in John's gospel is that Pythagoras, there's a story of Pythagoras coming upon fishermen and working a miracle with fish in their nets. And the number, I can't, I think it's 153, is mentioned in John's gospel at the end when they catch fish and their nets were breaking. There in total was 153. Well, Pythagoras also had a story about fishermen and fish in their nets that was miraculous. And the number of fish in the story is 153. And so it appears that John is making a direct connection 
between what's going on with Jesus and what the story with Pythagoras and 153 uh, was a sacred number of that time period. And I don't want to go into the math of it, but it, it dealt with the Visica Pisces, which became the symbol for Christianity, which was also an ancient symbol that had meaning throughout the world and was known throughout the world and was considered sacred throughout the world. So they borrowed that. The cross was known throughout the world and considered sacred throughout the world. And so they borrowed the idea of the cross, two intersecting lines, vertical and horizontal, and the meanings behind that. And all of this stuff is sort of woven into the Bible. So what I'm saying is the one thing that almost every scholar agrees on is that there are different competing ideas about who Jesus is and there's these mythological elements to the stories. Now, the camp that says Jesus was a historical person, they are not, in, they want to demythologize, demythologize the Bible. In other words, we can find out who Jesus is and what really happened in history when we strip away all the myth and we strip away all the, uh, layering of other stories and stuff on top of it. We just kind of lay it bare naked. Then we can know who Jesus is. What I like about the argument of the other folk is they're saying, no, the mythology is the important part. The mythology is there to speak to us about our spiritual potentials. It's there to awaken something with our, in our own consciousness to, to raise up the Christ within us that as we're studying these stories and reading these stories, things can happen inside us that bring forth the eternal divine aspect that is within ourselves. I find that really compelling. And I find that redemptive for myself in particular, because then it means that all my Bible study and all that stuff wasn't a waste and it can still have value, still have benefit for people today. It just needs to be recast in um, a more uh, mythological. Uh, it, I don't like using that word because people don't understand what I mean when I say that because they're thinking fairy tale. Um, I'm, I'm not using it that way. So be recast as a story that speaks eternal truths to human beings that helps them find what's within them. And rather than being so focused on a literal historical event and happening and stuff like that. So I find that compelling because it's, like I said, it's kind of redemptive for me. But I wanted to uh, just throw some stuff out there with you guys and see who resonates with this and I want to encourage you, if you're on a similar path, if you're not on that path, I want to invite you to consider it and think about it. Um, but one of the things, one of the things going down the, the road in deconstruction, uh, and I've talked to, you know, several people that have gone on this journey at the same time. We, you know, we just found ourselves taking the same journey in many ways. Um, I would, I would mention a couple of people, but I just, I'm not sure. I need to do that, and I haven't really talked to them and gotten their permission to do that. Um, if you watch Freeology Friday, uh, then you know Derek Day and I have gone on this uh, journey together. And uh, and one of the things Derek said to me at, at one point was, you know, if you don't at least consider atheism, then you haven't gone far enough with deconstruction. And I was willing to hear that and willing to weigh that, willing to think about that. And I talked to some other people that I won't mention my name who said as they were going through this process, a number of people, um, 
that I could say you, you would probably know who they are because a lot of you are mutual friends in Facebook and whatever. But they said, uh, you know, that they were atheists for a season or that atheism was on the table for them or whatever the case may be. And while I could hear the arguments and the reasoning behind it is solid, I could never really take it seriously for myself. And that was a wrestling match in and of itself, because then it's like, well, am I just deceiving myself? Am I just being dishonest with myself? What is it? And you've heard me say on here before that I can never become a full-flung atheist because I would just be taking a body of knowledge from a group of people out there and internalizing it and believing it, uh, but at the same time be denying myself and my own experiences. And everybody gets hung up on the experiences part. Um, they get hung up on the, yeah, I've seen healings part or, uh, yeah, I've seen healings too. Or, you know, yeah, I've had, uh, answered prayers that couldn't be explained or whatever as well. I've had, you know, synchronicities that we might consider to be supernatural. I've had those things too. And then to look for other explanations and it's easy to then minimize that and explain it away, uh, with, you know, like law of attraction stuff or um, placebo effect, right? We know there's a placebo effect in science. So if you have healing, someone believes they're going to be healed, it's no different than a placebo effect. Typical, typical, typical atheist argument against those kind of things. And I found those to be so unsatisfying for me. And so I've really been doing a lot of self-inquiry. Um, the last month, really doing a lot of self-inquiry, really looked at this year, the beginning of this year, the first plan for my plan for the first couple of months this year was to do a reset. I think it's good to do that every once in a while. I think it's good to reevaluate and think about the person that you want to be, the person that you've become, how has life shaped you, how has life affected you, who have you become, and what mistakes have you made, what limitations do you have, what are your strengths and your weaknesses and how do you want to press forward? What, what's valuable to you now? What's your ethos, your ethic? What's your mythos? Mythos is the story that you live, the story, the narrative that you're telling yourself. So I've been doing all this kind of self inquiry, looking at what is the story that I tell myself about myself? What are the ethics that I want to live by? What is in that sense owed to others when you live in community with them? Uh, and then, you know, what's important to me? What do I enjoy? What do I want? What's important to me at this stage in my life? What do I need to let go of? All that kind of self-inquiry. And so I started doing this self-inquiry into what is it that I, I just can't let go of spirituality or the divine and, and all that stuff. And it's, and when I talk about experiences, it dawned on me, it's, it's the, for me, it's more the mystical and the transcendent that just grips me. That is a huge part of my quest. So what do I mean when I say mystical and transcendent? And this is really getting to the nuts and bolts of what I wanted to talk about today. What, what do I mean when I talk about the mystical and the transcendent? Another word you could use is the occult. Now, when I use that word, it's going to trigger people, especially trigger Christians, because you've been lied to, Christian. You've been lied to about what occultism really is, because 
Uh, I read the same books you read. I went to the same deliverance conferences you went to. I've listened to the same preachers. And then when I stepped out and decided I'm going to explore what other people believe uh, that are on this quest for spirituality or a quest for power or whatever. And so I, I got some occult books and started reading them. And I found out I've been lied to. Like, this is not, not Satan worship. This is not, um, you know, about same, same thing with witchcraft, right? Like witchcraft is not this evil, black, dark magic thing. So you just, you've been lied to, Christian. I'm just going to tell you, if you get triggered by that word occult, you've been lied to. The word occult comes from ocular, which comes from vision, which simply means the study of that which is hidden or that which is concealed by ma- matter or our material worldview uh, about life. And so that's also what mysticism is. Mysticism is this quest for the mystery of what's out there, what's beyond, what's beyond this life, what's beyond material existence and material reality. And that's how I would define spirituality, I think, today as well. And then transcendence. Transcendence is, for me, at a very basic level, it's just the ability to get outside of yourself, to transcend yourself. So transcendence is really important. But also this idea that there is a transcendent reality. And when it comes to the divine, there is a intelligence. There's a creator. There's an intelligence. And there is a guiding principle of goodness or love that is woven into the universe and that this God is a personal being that you can know. Now I know that pisses people off and that can't be proven in any way, shape or form to the left hemisphere of the brain, which is where your logic and your talking comes from (laughs) and your linear thinking. But there's also this right hemisphere of the brain and there's the heart, right? And we know now that there's intelligence in the heart. We know there's intelligence. There's a brain in the gut. There's an intelligence there. We know that there is much more to the brain than just the left hemisphere. In fact, the uh, speech centers in the brain are shockingly small. And yet we do so much with language. And we tend to think of consciousness as that voice in our head or as the, the inward talking or, you know, we, like I said, when we're reasoning things out, we're using logic, mathematics, things like that. We're using really small portions of our brain. Uh, they've found with meditators from the East that when they meditate, they act, actually activate centers in the brain and wave, brainwave patterns that you don't see uh, activated in any other state of consciousness. So all that to say <laughs> that for me, Part of my quest, part of what gives my life meaning, part of what makes me come alive, what inspires me, is the mysticism and the transcendence and reaching out for that and perhaps even being able to find value in the scriptures to find pathways and doorways and keys that will unlock the transcendent, that will unlock the mystical, that will unlock the occult. 
and in that sense then allow for this transcendence. Really hard for me to explain what I'm talking about, but I can say this. Set aside the miracles, set aside the healings that we experienced in our ministry. Set aside the synchronicities, answered prayers, all that stuff. There was a deep sense within me of the mystical and the transcendent. The mystical and the transcendent. And that allowed me the ability to transcend my circumstances many, many times, which allowed for a lot of personal growth. I never could have deconstructed if I hadn't been able to transcend. What I mean is if I couldn't get outside of the version of myself that I knew as a pastor, if I couldn't get outside of myself as the version that I knew of myself as a uh, Christian, then I could never have taken an objective look at the scriptures like I began here. And I never would have been able to see the evils that literal religion has perpetrated on people. I would never have been able to see the psychological damage. I never would have known that there's a whole ton of hum- humanity out there that have been deeply, deeply traumatized and psychologically wounded by the doctrines that I myself was teaching. So just to be able to be here today, and I'm much more at peace than I was back then. Um, I'm much actually gentler, gentler and kinder to people even now than I was back then. Um, there's so much less conflict and strife in my life than there was back then. So all these improvements, right? Because I was able to transcend, because I was able to get outside the version of myself, that previous version of myself. And that's where all growth happens. And so, and that's also what I'm doing right now. That's what I've been doing the last two months is I've been transcending. I've been getting outside and beyond. Whew. (laughs) I can really feel that. Um, I'm transcending the version of myself that I was in since the pandemic. Um, I'm transcending that version of myself. So like there was the Christian pastor version of myself and I had to get outside of that and transcend into sort of a seeker for a while, a seeker who was open to shamanism, a seeker that was open to tarot readings and Reiki and um, astrology and, you know, all those forbidden things that we were told as Christians that we couldn't explore and we couldn't participate in. And then I uh, kind of morphed into a version of myself that was uh, a much angrier version of myself. Uh, and then, you know, as, as I was still kind of purging uh, psychologically stuff from my past and, and working through some really, really challenging circumstances that I n- never talked about publicly on here before, but but daily really significant personal challenges that life was presenting me with that was consistently kind of making me an angry person. So there was sort of that angry version and then the real skeptic where it's like, 
skeptical of this lost version of myself. And now I'm having the time to go inside and to look at my story, look at the version of myself, transcend the version of myself that I have been and say, okay, what's the new story? What's the new version? What's the new ethos? What's the new mythos? The story, the narrative, that's mythos. Um, ethos is ethics, uh, values, uh, what's owed to others as we live with them in community. How do I want to present myself? Uh, how do I want to live my life? This is, after all, my life. And that's that's the main thing, man. And I'm going to tell you right now, if I have an ethic that I'm really trying to build up in my life that's new for me, that is so important to me, is that uh, giving people the freedom to take ownership of their lives and live their lives their way without interference. So, in other words, uh, for me right now, the greatest sin that could be committed is the sin of manipulation or the sin that says that anything that's going to put a barrier on someone else, that's going to put a bondage on someone else, that's going to think that I know for them what's better for them than they know for themselves. Um, I still want to passionately disagree with ideologies and things that I think can bring harm to people. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I don't have the right to try to impose that on anyone else. If you get, if you get what I'm saying by that. So that also though, then that, that ethic also then makes me want to advocate for people, groups who are somehow hindered from being able to live and express life the way they want to live it because of social inequalities or because of prejudice or because of racism or because I don't like, you know, like I have no problem if you're a boy and you want to identify as a girl or you want to, I don't care if you want to identify as a cat, like it doesn't bother me. It's not my place to tell you how to live your life. I don't know why I got off on that. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, because of this ethic that just says, hey, do you, man. Live life your way. Believe what you want to believe. Like, I'm going to hold space for you, and I'm going to honor you. If you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, if you honor the Bible, if you don't honor the Bible, if you practice Wicca or you don't practice Wicca or you practice a form of Luciferianism, that has a good ethos to it, has a good ethic to it, or you practice um, Christianity. That's the hard one for me, right? That's the hard one because we always kind of want to shit on what we came out of. Uh, you know, if you want to be a fundamentalist Christian, um, fine. That's your choice to live your life your way. But let me come back to transcendence. And, I, and I'll close with this story. So when I was... This will help you understand me where I'm coming from. So when I burned out, I burned out in 2016 and went on a three-month journey. We called it a sabbatical back then, but we went on a three-month journey. And for me, really, it was a, a journey of discovery. It was stepping out of the box. And I purposely set an intention to be able to explore 
like new age type stuff, um, explore occultism, explore shamanism, and just say, hey, you know what, what's out there? Reiki energy work, past lives, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I found this really cool place, man. It was just pretty close to where we were at in Phoenix. And I walk into this meeting and it, it was a Wednesday night church service. And I remember they said, uh, <laughs> they asked me what I did for a living and I told them I was an evangelical pastor, the leaders of it. And they looked at me and they go, Oh, <laughs> and I could tell it bothered them. Right. And they said, well, we're open to people of all faiths here. <laughs> It was the first time I had been put in a spiritual religious context that I wasn't on the inside, that I I was looked at as the other. It was really an important part of that experience. What am I talking about? I'm talking about transcendence, talking about getting outside yourself. And they sit us in a circle like an AA meeting, and they pick a topic. And the first thing they did was they stood up and they start invoking uh, Jesus, Mary, Krishna, uh, I can't remember the Buddhist goddess, um, Kuan Yin, I think, if I've got that right, uh, you know, master so-and-so and master such-and-such and, you know, all these spiritual entities. And I'm still at the time, those are all demons. I mean, this is all real, objectively out there in my thinking at the time. And they're all demons, right? And... Uh, <clears throat> And then we go through some meditation, we have some discussion, and then they say, we went to India, and we received this impartation from a guru over there called a Diksha blessing. And the word Diksha means oneness. And there's just an energy and a power in that impartation. And we're going to come around and lay hands on each one of you to impart this blessing. Well, now I'm like, remember, I'm fresh out of, like, deliverance school, man. Like, I'm fresh out of Freedom Weekends. Those of you that were with us and know what we used to do, I'm, 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 you know, these are demons that I'm messing with here. And, oh, my God, you know, uh, impartation, what's going to happen? And so they said, if you don't want to receive the laying on of hands, they were behind us in a circle coming around. If you don't want to receive the laying on of hands, raise your hand up and, uh, and we just won't lay hands on you. And so they're, they're coming. I'm, I'm nervous, man. I'm like, I want to explore this. I want to experience this. I want to be open to this. But what if it's a demon? And listen, gang, our Bible tells us greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, right? If God be for us, who could be against us? Uh, I give you power to trample serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means harm you. So why the hell are we afraid of this stuff, right? So, but I'm working, wrestling this through my mind and I begin to feel what I knew at that time, as the presence of God, as the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It experienced it many times in meetings. And this was a completely different context. So people would say, well, that the, the anointing is bullshit. It's just psychological. There is an element of that. I mean, sometimes I think people just say that because they were never really around it. They were just around the emotionalism of Christianity, and they may argue in their mind, oh, yeah, I was around the best of the best. Listen, I was around the best of the best of the best, uh, big-name guys, and I could count two of them that ever manifested anything I would have called the anointing. And that's just the truth uh, of the big-name guys. 
Now, there were several other people that I worked with and connected with around the world that could really bring in the presence of God in situations, what we called the presence of God. Um, because there is something, again, transcendent, tangible for me, for me. I'm speaking for myself. Even now, even this ver- new version of myself. And they're coming by and I can feel this presence and it's so warm and it's so inviting and it's so peaceful. And I took a deep breath. I said, okay. And they came and they laid hands on me and I felt what I would call the presence of God. Like I'd felt many times when people have prayed for me flow through my being. And I was scared to death, man, because I felt like, I felt like in that moment that I had betrayed Christ, that I had denied him like Peter, that I had betrayed him like Judas. I'm feeling that in my heart. I'm feeling that conviction in my heart. And I say to myself, Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So imagine my surprise. When I look up, open my eyes and look up, and I have this open vision. I'm an open vision. So open vision is your eyes are open and you're seeing something out here. You still know it's a vision. You still know it's immaterial. And there people can give psychological explanations, whatever for this. But I open my eyes and I see all these beings that had been prayed into the meeting. And I see Jesus how I saw Jesus standing there in the center. And I look up and there's this communication. So anytime I've ever had experiences like these, and I've heard people talk about these in near-death experiences, the communication is on a telepathic level. It's on a deeper level that transcends language. But I'll never forget that what was communicated to me from this image of the Christ that I was seeing was, it's okay, Aaron. And there's a verse of scripture in Jeremiah where Jeremiah rebukes the system of his day, and he calls him a broken cistern that can hold no water. And immediately, just flashing in front of my eyes, is all the searching that I did within the Christian religion trying to find help and wholeness and healing, and it left me burnout, and it left me battered, and it left me psychologically damaged. Instead of being the cure, it was the disease. <laughs> and I remember the voice, the, the communication from the Christ coming to me, saying, it's okay, and as I'm going through this timeline, all this effort I put into these things. And it said, it's a broken cistern. These were all broken cisterns that could hold no water. And you do not have to be ashamed for stepping outside the broken cisterns to find the path that's going to work for you. What am I talking about? I'm talking about transcendence. I'm talking about transcendence. And so I go home that night to where we were staying. So much peace in my being. I felt so much better because remember I was burnt out. I was in therapy. I was messed up, you know, and I lay there in my bed and I go to sleep and I have this dream. And in this dream, an angel of the Lord, what I would call back then the angel of the Lord, this being of light 
radiant being of light appears to me in my dream <clears throat> and tells me these words, tells me this, this, this was the message. Everything you've known about yourself is going to be stripped from you. Everything you know about yourself as a good Christian man, everything you know about yourself as a father, everything you know about yourself as a husband, everything you know about yourself as a pastor, as a leader, your reputation is all going to be stripped from you. <laughs> this is a necessary tearing down of the former version of yourself. Because, see, I got to the point that I realized that former version of me, I don't like that guy too much. That former version of me was miserable. That former version of me had no emotional connection to life, just going through the motions. Because in reality, that former version of me, I wasn't living my life. I was living a hand-me-down life. I was living a second-hand life. I bought my life at the second-hand store of apostles, prophets, and elders. I went to the apostles to find out what to do. I went to the elders to find out what to do. I went to the deacon board to find out what to do. I went to people that were older than me to find out what to do. I went to committees to find out what to do. And I made so many decisions with consensus because consensus was important to me, but because it was so much not who I was and didn't fit with me that I was going to buy a secondhand life at a secondhand store that was run by a prof- apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, leaders. And so it all had to go, man. It all had to be stripped. And so I'm not mad at anybody anymore. There's people, you have no idea the lies that have been said about me and my family. You have no idea the injury that has been done to us by people who don't know the story and don't care to know the story and don't care about us. You don't know what my kids have heard about me from other kids at their school whose parents are Christians and I have to come home and and they come home and they ask and I have to explain what's happening. And I've never publicly defended myself. I've been encouraged to, but I never have because of this experience, right? Because that all had to go, man. That all had to go. If I go out and start defending myself, then all I'm doing is propping up a version of myself that was hand-me-down in second class. And I don't, I don't, I'm not that person anymore. So I don't need to defend that person. (laughs) I'd be defending a ghost. You see what I'm saying? What am I talking about? I'm talking about transcending yourself. So in this dream, this being of light, this angel of the Lord, whatever you want to call it, said, Aaron, all that's got to go and gave me this warning. And this is why this is why I haven't gone out in self-defense mode and, you know, tried to correct people when they believe complete, absolute absurdities about me. Like that had to go. And the message was, if you try to cling to it, to try to hold on to it, to try to prop it up or resurrect it or defend it. This was back then. This was back in 2017, right? In this dream. You're just going to abort the process of your own healing and your own wholeness and your own well-being. Let a new self emerge. But don't go out trying to define that new self right away. And so 
that was the beginning of this journey for me. That was the beginning of this journey for me. And see, it's that kind of transcendence. Whether I'm connecting with, I think, when I'm when I was having that vision, I'm connecting with a symbol that Jesus represents, a symbol of the Christ self, the Christ that's in me. Um, and then I'm working with archetypes. But whether they're transcendent beings, well, I do believe that. I do believe uh, um, that there are angels. I do believe that there are demons. I do believe that there are perhaps maybe you want to call them aliens that exist in other dimensional realms. I believe, I believe in spirits. In other words, I absolutely believe in that. Um, but even if they're just archetypes for me, it's one and the same thing. Um, I don't think about entities the way other people maybe think about entities because they're not, they're not physical. They're non-physical. They're non-material. They're aspects of consciousness. So whether you look at it as archetypes, why am I doing this? Because I feel the need to explain and defend myself to a bunch of people because I, I don't want to piss anybody off. And I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop explaining what I think. doesn't matter. However you think about it is fine. What am I talking about? I'm talking about transcendence. So I'm in this period of time where it's like, okay, I want to get out of this version of myself. Now, there are aspects of this version of myself that I want to keep and take with me into the future. Definitely 100%. So this isn't going to be like a total deconstruction of like what I had before. But none of that would have happened if I hadn't maintained my quest and hunger and spiritual push for connecting with the transcendent. And so allowing that new self to unfold. Or if you want any change at all in your life, you have to be able to transcend what it is that you want to change. If you have a habit you want to change, you've got to be able to transcend the habit. You've got to be able to get outside of it, get above it, get dominion, if you will, over it. If you want to transform your finances, you've got to transcend your finances. If you want to transform because you're stuck in a shit job that you don't like and you want to get a new career, you've got to transcend the version of yourself that's dependent upon that job. You may have to completely rethink everything about your life if your happiness is more important. You may have to change your lifestyle. You may have to, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm facing all these things, right? I'm facing all these things. So I'm thinking through, you know, like a new version of myself. Um, what do I want? And then if I want it badly enough, what do I have to change? And then I start working with my life to change the things that I need to change in order to have the things that I want to have. But I can't do any of that without transcendence. So anyway, hope I have helped you. I hope I've encouraged you. Um, I hope that I have blessed you. Uh, and thanks for watching. And uh, have a wonderful, wonderful uh, rest of your day or evening, whatever time you're watching this.